Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name is Chad. I am the senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. You will need a Bible as we'll be in Genesis 6 today. We're a people under the Word, and I'm going to be making claims today that I think you probably will want to check in the Word of God and follow along with me in the Word of God and see if these things are true. With that said, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read the passage we looked at last week and really walked through last week, but I left a question on the table that I want to answer, or a couple questions I want to answer. So Genesis chapter 6, I'm just going to read verses 5 through 8. And as I read it, I want to remind you, this is a preview at the end of the second genealogy. Genesis is arranged around genealogies. At the end of the second genealogy, we get a narrative And at the end of that narrative, we get a preview of what's coming in the next genealogy, which starts in Genesis 6-9. We get a preview of that story. You guys are familiar with it, the story of the flood and Noah and the ark. And so we're getting a preview of it, which I walked through last week, but I want to press into a couple questions this week. So let's read that, Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we hear this, we would receive it as what it is, the word of the Lord. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding of what you're revealing about yourself in Scripture. That would help us to apprehend to the degree that we are able as creatures, what we can about you, our creator. And that our apprehension of that truth would lead to faith and repentance and obedience and worship, singing, prayer, contemplation, the declaration of Christ and his kindness toward us. Guard our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus so that we do not swerve into error. And help us to the degree that we are able to think about and apprehend some of the deeper truths, the mysteries that you reveal about yourself in Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, historically, the church confesses That God is impassable. And when I say the church, I mean from the ancient church, through the era of Protestant orthodoxy, this has been nearly universally held. The phrase the English Protestant confessions have long used, and they're not the first, but we find their confessions, is that God is without body, parts, or passions. Now, what do we mean when we say God is without passions? What do we mean by that? We mean that God cannot be moved from one state of being to another state of being. For example, God is not in a state of happiness 
and then I do something bad, and now God's in a state of sadness. He cannot be acted upon from the outside and moved to become something that he is not. Further, it means that God does not act upon himself in such a manner that he becomes something that he's not. Why? Because God is. That's why we profess that. Because God is. God does not become. God is. God is not like us in the sense that some agent outside of him acts and then God reacts and experiences some change of mind or emotions. Further, God did not sovereignly determine to add to himself some ability to react emotionally that he did not have before when he created us. Why is that? Why do we say that? Listen to what I'm going to answer again. Because God is. God does not become. He is eternally, perfectly, immutably what he is. Without any potential. You hear that? It's kind of hard to hear that, right? Because when I was growing up, I was not living up to my potential. I remember the parent-teacher conferences. Chad has so much potential. And what they're saying is, there's some potency, there's some ability for me to become something I was not. Like, I could become active in doing my work, (laughs) rather than lazy and not doing my work. You guys follow that. And I could actually do well on school stuff. I had potential. God does not have potential. It's not like we pat God on the head and say, well, we're looking forward to what you become someday. He doesn't have the potential to become something more or something less than he is. So if that confession of the church is true, then what do we do with a passage like Genesis 6, 6 through 7? Look at Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord regretted, regretted. Now, probably more helpfully and properly translated, repented. The Lord regretted or repented that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The Lord regretted or repented. The Lord was grieved to his heart. The Lord was sorry. Now that text sure sounds like an emotional response, doesn't it? It sure sounds like a passionate change of mind. He looked on creation. He found what he saw to be abhorrent. And he reacted emotionally and passionately. Further, if God is impassable, if he's without passion, then other questions come up. Not only what do you do with this text, but, for example, where is God in our suffering? Where is he? Listen, does he lack compassion? What the word compassion is? The scripture ascribes the word compassion to him. It's to suffer with someone. Does he lack compassion for us in our suffering? How can God be unchanging in his passions in the face of deep human 
suffering. How could the Lord see the terrible human suffering under the hands of wicked men and be unmoved, impassable? Would that not make him into some cold, distant deity whom none of us can really know? The Bible teaches that Yahweh, the Lord, is the creator, the provider, the redeemer. In doing so, the Bible teaches us that God is utterly transcendent over his creation in that he alone is God and we are his creation. He is wholly other from his creation in that he is not a creature. The Bible reveals to us that he is, and he is eternally, immutably, perfectly what he is. He does not become. He's not moved from one state of being to another. He's not a creature like us. And the Bible also teaches us that God is intimately, personally, dynamically, actively, lovingly involved with us. He is the God who covenants with us and who accomplishes his great purpose to dwell with us. He is the loving, near, kind, compassionate, triune God who has revealed himself to us in nature and in Scripture. And while these ideas seem contradictory to us, or like a problem to us, and I want that word to stick in your mind, like a problem to us, they're not. They're not. In fact, here's what I'm arguing this morning, and I hope you capture this. What I'm arguing this morning is that it is precisely because God is eternally independent, transcendent, perfect, and immutable, even in his impassibility, it's precisely that that makes him loving, dynamic, personal, and near. Precisely that that makes all of that so full and so glorious for us. I want us to consider that this morning by making three points. First, God's revelation of himself does not cause problems. Do you guys hear that? For us to solve. Rather, it discloses mysteries for us to believe. Second, God's revelation of himself is in creaturely language. But he is not a creature. Third, God's revelation of himself is an occasion for faith, repentance, contemplation, prayer, and worship, not for mere intellectual stimulation nor for sowing of some kind of religious fig leaves. So let's begin with our first point. Here's the first point I want you to grasp. God's revelation of himself does not cause us problems. Rather, it discloses mysteries. In our thinking about God, man has often struggled with the temptation to turn mysteries to be believed into problems to be solved. We just turn them into problems to be solved. And in an attempt to solve the problem, we inevitably end up denying one set of biblical propositions so that we might affirm another set of biblical propositions that we prefer. 
let me give you some examples of how in solving the problem we've ended up in error. Let me give you the two biggest historical examples. God says in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Then it is revealed to us. It's adumbrated. It's kind of shadowed forth in the Old Testament, but revealed to us clearly in the New Testament that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Holy Spirit, nor the Son of the Holy Spirit the Father, etc. Those things are revealed to us. In Scripture, we learn about three distinct persons and one God. And we see this mystery. One God, three distinct persons. Historically, what we do is we say, well, I can't wrap my mind around that. How can he be one in essence and three in persons? How is that not contradictory? I don't get it. So here's what I'll do. I'll deny he's really three persons. I'll turn him into modes where, like, not modes of subsistence, that's technical language, but modes of revelation, like he is the Father, and then he becomes the Son, and he becomes the Holy Spirit. Turn to modes, or I'll just deny that there are three in God altogether. I'll just deny that because I want to favor the notion that there's one God. Or I'll deny that there's really one God by turning the three persons into sort of three deities of some kind. So that there's like these eternal relations of authority in which they're each submitting to each other as sort of different kinds of beings. That's quite popular, by the way, today. I want to deny the Trinity, though. That's what happens when I don't know what to do with mystery. And instead, I think there's a problem to be solved rather than a mystery to be believed. I just try to solve the problem and I end up a heretic. That's what happens. Or think about Jesus as Theanthropos, the God-man. How is it that Jesus has two natures, truly God, truly man, one person? What do I do with passages where he prays to the Father and says things like, the Son does not know? Now, I know the eternal Son knows, but somehow the person of Christ does not know. According to his humanity, what do I do with that? I don't know. It's a mystery. Nope. That's not how we tend to see it. We go and say, it's a problem. I have to solve it. I'm going to solve it. And then what do we do? Well, he's not really two natures. He's not really one person. So we deny two natures, and we end up in what's historically called Eutychianism. It's a kind of blending of the two natures in favor of the one person. Or we deny that he's one person, and we end up in the opposite extreme in Nestorianism, which is sort of the pushing of two natures so hard that we almost end up with a schizophrenic Jesus who's like got two persons going on in him. But we end up in heresy because we just are uncomfortable with mystery. Or how about election and human responsibility? The Bible says with as much clarity as you can possibly imagine in Ephesians 1 or Romans 9, I could list several passages, that before the foundation of the world, God elected everyone whom he would save. Numerically and precisely. And, there's that claim, And the Bible says, without qualification, clearly as can be, that your choices are real and you bear real responsibility for them. So now what do I do? Here's what I do. I don't know what to do with that mystery. How could God be sovereign and elect before the foundation of the world? And I have real choices. I don't know what to do with it, so here's what I'll do. I'll just 
make one of those two go away. Whichever one I like the least, I'll make it go away. Well, in the past century in particular, we've done the same thing with the Bible's revelation of God's emotional responses. We have texts that say God does not change, that he does not repent, and texts that says he's repenting, that he's changing his mind. And we want one of the two to go away. And because we're in a therapeutic generation where we really want a God who feels what we feel, we make all the text go away that says he doesn't. We see that the Bible teaches that God is and does not become. We see that the Bible teaches that God does not change. Then we read texts like the Lord regretted and it grieved him to his heart and that he's sorry. And we think, oh no, how do I resolve this problem? Is there some hermeneutical principle, like Bible study principle, by which I can make this text of Scripture or the text that says God does not regret sort of go away? See, we start searching for a way to make the text say what it's not saying or to make the text not say what it is saying. Here's what I want you to understand. When God reveals himself to us, there's never a real contradiction to be resolved. Never. There's never a real contradiction to be resolved. Rather, there are often just truths revealed to us that are beyond our scope of creaturely comprehension. Just beyond. Let's think about Moses in Exodus 3. Look at Exodus 3. Keep your hand here. Same author of Genesis, Exodus 3. Look there and verse 13. We know this story Israel is in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. They've been crying out to the Lord under Pharaoh. And the Lord raises up this man, Moses. And the Lord meets him in a burning bush, this theophany in which the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. And the Lord tells him, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And as Moses interacts with the Lord, Moses asks a question. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now I just want to stop there for a second. The God of my fathers has sent me to you. In other words, the God who Moses is already aware of. The God who in Genesis 17 calls himself El Shaddai, the Almighty. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see that earlier in this passage. If I tell them the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's covenanted with them as the Almighty, look what he goes on to say. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, when you're asking for a name, you're wanting to know who you're dealing with. You're wanting to know about them. Who are you? It's going to reveal who you are, what you are. What do I tell them? Look at God's answer. What is the name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, Moses knew God was the God of Israel's fathers, yet he wanted to know more. Now he hears God say, I am who I am. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Moses has learned more information, hasn't he? What's the information? God is. 
What's your name? I am who I am. He learns that God is. God is. He is of himself, independent, never becoming something he's not. He's eternally, fully, actively what he is. Now, when you hear that, do you think to yourself, well, that settles it. I totally get it now. I've wrapped my mind around God. Of course not. Your head starts to spin. You know that whatever this means, it means more than you can wrap your mind around. There never once was once when God was not. God does not become something. He is fully, actively what he is eternally. He doesn't change. When did God start? He didn't. Has God gone through any changes? He hasn't. When he created things and now has a, if you will, a new relation to something he created that he did not have before, was there any change in him? No, there wasn't. Because he doesn't become anything. He is who he is. What do I do with that? Believe it. Because he said it. Moses now knows more about God than he did before, and yet Moses is less able to comprehend him than he was before. I get it. You're the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're the God who covenanted with us. And now that you've told me more information, I know more about you, and I'm less able to understand you in the sense of wrapping my mind around who you are. Here's what I'm saying. As he's revealed more truth about himself, the mystery has deepened, not lessened. There is not a problem to be solved. There is a mystery to be believed. We want to know fully and comprehend completely, but we need to be satisfied with apprehending, just getting our little fingers, if you will, on the edge of his cloak. Apprehending the truth by faith needs to satisfy us rather than arrogantly thinking that we can comprehend all the truth revealed here. If we could just somehow resolve these so-called problems, that's what we think. That's arrogance. There aren't problems here to be resolved. There are mysteries here to be believed. That leads to my second point. God's revelation of himself is in creaturely language. But he is not a creature. He's not a creature. He's the creator. We must, catch us. we must use creaturely language to describe God. What other kind of language do we have? And when we talk about language, I want to think about it. We must use, what I'm saying is, we must use signs of real things that are not the thing itself to describe him. Think about language for a minute. Language is a system of signs that point to some reality. So right now you're sitting in a chair, aren't you? You're all sitting in a chair. But chair is a sign. There's five symbols, C-H-A-I-R, and those five symbols organized in that particular order are a sign that points to reality. So I can say to you, there's a chair, and you can say, yes, it is. Or I can say to you, sit down in your chair, and you know what I'm talking about. When I say sit down in your chair, I've just used a series of signs that you all can hear and understand and respond to. And as creatures, we use these signs to communicate ideas, don't we? So when we speak or write about God, we're bound 
to these creaturely signs to describe him. We must use creaturely descriptions about God as we are creatures. That's all we have. Yet God is not a creature like us. So the descriptive language through which God reveals himself is communicating the truth about him, but it's doing so in accord with him being God. It's using, if you will, creaturely descriptions about him in accord with his being God and not a creature. So look at Genesis 6, 5. Genesis 6, 5. Let's look at this text. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Notice what's happening literarily in Genesis. From a literary perspective, what's happening? The Lord saw that it was evil, right? The Lord grieved. The Lord said. Now think of Genesis 1. What do we hear again and again? The Lord saw that it was good. The Lord saw that it was good. Now the Lord saw that it was evil. Look at Genesis 6, 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw, notice that, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive in Hebrew tov or good. That they were good. And they took as their wives any they chose. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive or good and they took. This language in Genesis 6, 5 through 7 is given to us as a direct contrast to all of that. Remember the fall into sin. Satan tempted Adam and Eve by telling them what? If you eat the fruit, you will be like God in knowing good and evil. What does the text say? Eve saw that the fruit was good and Eve took and ate. What's the fundamental temptation here? You'll be like God. You'll be the judge of good and evil. You'll be an autonomous, a self-rule or law unto yourself. That's what you'll be. And so Moses is giving us the literary contrast in God's judgment here. Mankind had become his own autonomous judge of good and evil, and man was now doing all that his wicked heart desired. And we see God's contrasting judgment. Man saw that wickedness was good, and man took. God saw the evil, and God grieved, and God said. This language of the Lord regretting, or best translated, the Lord repented that he had made man, is striking language to us. I mean, what is it to repent? What is it to repent? It's to have a change of mind. It is to decide to turn and go in a different direction. So if I'm doing and believing this thing over here, and then I repent, I turn, I change my mind about that, and I change my direction and do and believe this thing over here instead. That's what repentance is. Further, this language that God was grieved to his heart is a bit startling. What's it to be grieved to your heart? Well, let me give you an example. What's the most difficult pain you can imagine? 
Most of us in here are parents. Not all of us, but most of us are parents. So most of our minds immediately go to the loss of a child as the most difficult pain we could imagine. But you know, there is something more painful or worse than the death of your child. And that's a child who is irredeemably and unrepentantly wicked. Imagine the grief of the parents of those children who take a gun and walk into their school and murder their classmates. Can you imagine being more sickened, more heartstruck, more overwhelmed with grief than that? You once had that child as a baby, smiled at you, you raised, poured time into, and then you see them doing that. Well, the Lord is the creator, and he is pictured here like a father who is deeply grieved by the loss of a child, not the loss of death, which is unbearably difficult, but the loss to utter wickedness, which is even worse. It's even worse. Now, you might wonder how we can ascribe this kind of language to God. Is Moses saying that God changed his mind? Did God realize that he was wrong and change course? Is Moses saying that God has passions or emotions that are affected by the actions of creatures outside of himself? Is God's eternal will and happiness being overturned by the sin of man? Well, no, Moses is not saying any of that. God cannot change. He does not repent. His mind does not change. Listen, Moses also wrote Numbers 23, 19. Listen to what it says. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, which is another way to talk about him being a man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's will is immutable. In other words, unchanging. God does not repent in the sense that he changes his mind. His decree is eternally fixed and certain. So I think it's important that we see this most clearly in one particular text. This one will make your head spin a bit. 1 Samuel and chapter 15. 1 Samuel and chapter 15. What immediately is going to happen as we read this passage is you're going to go, a problem I need to solve. A problem I need to solve. I don't want you to do that. 1 Samuel 15. If you guys remember, Saul had been made king over Israel. And Samuel had said to Saul, look, you're going to go in and conquer this people. And when you do, you're going to devote everything to destruction. Don't keep any of the stuff for yourself. And Saul disobeys. Saul sits as the judge of good and evil over God. Which is what we always do when we sin, isn't it? Every time we sin, we decide God's judgment on what's good and evil is not right, and our judgment is right. And so Saul sits in judgment on God, and that over what's good and evil, First Samuel 15, 11, 
or let's start in verse 10. We read this, 1 Samuel 15, 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. Now notice, I regret, repent. Same Hebrew word as in Genesis 6. I regret, repent, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now go down to verse 35, the very end of this chapter. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted, repented, same Hebrew word as in Genesis 6 and in 1 Samuel 15, 11, that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, <laughs> this is the part where, you know, we stop in the middle of the text and go, say what? Look at verse 29. And also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or what? Have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Same Hebrew word. God does not repent for he's not a man that he should repent. God repented he made Saul king. God repented that he made Saul king. God does not repent because he's not a man that he should repent. How do we resolve the problem? Well, first, remember our point above. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be believed. You're learning two truths here by God's own revelation. First, God does not repent nor regret as he is not a man. Second, in some way, in some way, it's being revealed to us that God repents, just not in the way of a creature or a man. And the Bible sees no problem with revealing both of these truths in the same passage. Now, if both truths were being held up in the same way, at the same time, we would have a contradiction. But they're not. Rather, we're being told that God regrets or repents of making Saul king because Saul had sinned. So what we're seeing is a change in Saul to which, if you will, God is responding. But we're not seeing a change in God. Rather, we're told that God does not repent. God does not have regret. He does not change. As he is not a man, he is not a creature. So Saul's wickedness has not changed God. Rather, God is eternally holy and righteous. And the change herein is that God is going to remove Saul as king. Catch this. Saul is sinning, and God does not have to change to regret that he made Saul king. That is merely a way of stating what has always been true in God. God does not tolerate wickedness. He is immutably, out of the fullness of his holy and righteous being, opposed to sin. And God does not have to change to remove Saul as king. The Lord promised that he would remove wicked kings like Saul. He merely has to keep his own promises and be true to who he eternally or what he eternally is for this language to be true. Listen, friends, herein is our problem as creatures. We only have creaturely language to describe our creator. We only have that. He's revealed himself to us in these creaturely signs. That's all we have to speak about him. The Bible is communicating quite clearly that God hates sin And wickedness, God is opposed to it. God will judge sin. 
But we need to understand that God does not become something he was not. Rather, he is eternally and completely opposed to wickedness. But God kindly baby talks us, if you will. To use the language of Calvin, that in Scripture God lisps to us as creatures. We could never comprehend the creator of all things with our minds, nor with our language. Here's how Augustine helpfully addresses this. Augustine says this, But it is only by the use of such human expressions that Scripture can make its many kinds of readers whom it wants to help to feel as it were at home. Only thus can Scripture frighten the proud and arouse the slothful, provoke inquiries, and provide food for the convinced. This is possible only when Scripture gets right down to the level of the lowliest readers. So God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. God tells us he is angry, he is grieved to his heart, he is repentant, and then God puts guardrails around that language by also telling us in Scripture, I'm not a man like you, I don't repent or change or experience passions like creatures do. So these are expressions after the manner of men. They are what scholars call anthropopathisms. There's the word of the day. It's probably not on, what's that little game, Wordle or whatever? Probably not on there, but there's your word of the day. Anthropopathisms. In other words, a description of God with human passions. Human passions being used to describe God's being and works. Just as God describes himself, remember, with fingers and hands and arms and wings and feathers and really large nostrils. Though he does not have a body. Just as a spirit appears as a dove, though he's not a dove. You understand that, right? Or just as Jesus says of the bread, this is my body, or this is my blood, though, as he's sitting there, disciples understand that actually his body and his blood are right in front of them too. They're signs. The Lord of glory is Glory is revealing himself to us in signs, in symbols, in language that we can apprehend, though we may never comprehend it. We must remember that God dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him or can see him. Here's what Luther says, riffing on Augustine. God in his essence is altogether unknowable. Nor is it possible to define or put into words what he is, though we burst in that effort. It is for this reason that God lowers himself to the level of our weak comprehension and presents himself to us in images, in coverings, as it were, in simplicity adapted to a child, that in some measure it may be possible for him to be known by us. So God describes himself with human emotions, though he does not experience emotions nor passions as humans do. He's not acted upon or changed by agents outside of himself like we are, nor does he act upon himself to change himself. Rather, God is. God does not undergo change. But in order that we might understand him at all, he accommodates us with the revelation of himself and our own speech. Now, please misunderstand this. In Genesis 6, God is not announcing that he got it wrong. Nor is God telling us he has a change in feelings about sin. God is not saying, well, 
Now that I see sin in man for the first time, I've been moved to the realization that I hate it. I'm sort of taken aback by how gross and abhorrent I find it all to be. I don't like it. I'm going to get rid of it. That's not what's happening. God is not some impotent, unknowing deity who is just sitting back reacting to creatures who have power over him in some way. God hates sin eternally out of the unchanging fullness of his being. To be goodness itself, which God is, is to hate what is evil. So God is not telling us about a new emotional state of being he's experiencing. Rather, the Lord is telling us that his providential work toward us is changing for us. And he's doing so in such a manner that it's best described as a reaction derived from his grief over or hatred for sin. And what's the change in his providential work toward us? Look at Genesis 6-7. Genesis 6-7, just as he was going to remove Saul as king, that was the change in providential work. Look at Genesis 6-7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. I'll blot you off the face of the earth. We need to remember here that even in context, God is not being caught off guard and suddenly reacting with some kind of surprise. How do we know that? Because in Genesis 5, we are already signaled prophetically by both Enoch and Lamech that this is coming. Matthew Henry sums up these expressions as being expressions that are after the manner of men. And then he also says of God looking upon the wickedness of man, he says this. He did not see it as an unconcerned spectator, but as one injured and affronted by it. He saw it as a tender father, sees the folly and stubbornness of a rebellious and disobedient child, which not only angers him, but grieves him and makes him wish he had been written childless. The point I'm making is that the Lord hates sin as the one who is eternally good and thus immutably hates what is evil. The Lord was not spurred on by the actions of men to hate evil. He has an eternally settled opposition to it. And he expresses in Genesis 6 how that eternally settled opposition to evil is going to now affect man's future. He's going to keep his promise that the wages of sin is death, and he's going to execute justice upon mankind. Now, here's one more error I want to avoid. We're not supposed to come to texts like these in Scripture and say, well, that's analogical language. Anyway, that's technical term. I'm not going to get into that. Here's what I'm getting at. We're not going to come to texts like this and say, well, it might say that God is grieved or angry or moved to pity or compassion. We know he really is not any of those things. In other words, please be careful. We are not saying that there's no truth about God being taught here. What we're saying is that this language about God's passions are actually shown to be placed in greater relief against the canvas of his divine transcendence or his otherness. The fact that this creaturely language does not make God into a creature, but does reflect about the truth about who God is, is precisely what makes the mystery so profound. I'm not saying that these biblical expressions about God are less true because God is, I am, who I am. I'm saying that this language is to be read in the light of his being God and not a creature. I am not arguing that it is the impassibility of God 
the fact that he is, and he is not becoming, that he's not changing, nor self-actualizing, nor full of unmet potential until we come along, that it is, excuse me, I am arguing, that it's precisely that. It's precisely all of that, which makes so deeply profound and relevant the revelation that he grieves and sorrows and regrets and burns with anger and shows compassion and mercy and love and grace in the whole of creation as God and not as a mutable, passable creature. God is. His transcendence, his otherness, is not in competition with his eminence, his nearness to us. He does not have competing attributes that make him either further away from us or near to us. He just is God. His transcendence is precisely why his eminence is so relevant to us. He is the God who is not a creature, the God who has no need. He is the God who is, who is not becoming, who is not changing, who is not passable, who is not experiencing some lack in himself apart from us. He is the God who has no potential to become something he is not. He is fully actual. He is not static and inert. He is eternally and utterly dynamic and active. He does not have to be moved to hate sin, nor to be compassionate toward his people, nor to love us and have mercy upon us. He is love. He is holy. He is righteous. He is relational and near. He is living and active. He is. He is love and life and holiness and righteousness. He is the God who is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. And he is the God who draws near to sinful creatures like us, who has compassion on us and pities us, who hates sin, opposes our enemies, and patiently holds out his hand to us in grace out of his love for us. This is one of the mysteries if you will, the great mysteries of the faith. The God who created all things is so other from us that we can be certain that for that very reason, he is near to us, personal, living, and active among us. It is because he is the impassable God, the God without mood swings, the God who out of unbounded fullness of his being is opposed to sin and committed to loving us. That we can believe texts wherein God keeps his covenant promises to his people. Texts like Hosea 11, 8 through 9, when God says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And that leads to my final point, which is the shortest of them. Third point, God's revelation of himself is an occasion for faith, repentance, contemplation, prayer, and worship. Not, not for mere intellectual stimulation, nor for sowing religious fig leaves. What do I mean by that? How are we to respond, Christian, to God's revelation of himself? We're to worship. We're to worship. This is not a book that's been given to us 
so that we might concoct religious fig leaves, some external set of religious works whereby we can hide ourselves from the truth about us. This is also not a book given to us so that we might merely pursue intellectual endeavors that lead us into the library, but never to our knees, and never to corporate worship, and never to the rooftops to shout the glorious goodness of our God and His grace toward us. When we understand what and who God is, it ought to drive us to faith and repentance and worship. Now, I want to consider for one moment how David's realization of what God and who God is, particularly in the face of David's own sin, caused him to believe, to repent, to pray, and to sing. So look with me at Psalm 51, and we'll conclude there. Psalm 51. Note the superscript. It's almost dead center of your Bible, by the way. Not quite. Note the superscript because this text here is actually a part of the original psalm when it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. That's part of the original psalm that's telling you the occasion for the writing. When is this? If you remember, David had slept with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. It's a pretty wicked act on behalf of a king. Deeply wicked act on behalf of a king. And David is then confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin, and David repents. Now notice his repentance. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Now note this, the basis for David's appeal, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, bought out my transgressions. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, David is appealing to God's immutable character in his cry for mercy. He's not asking God to change. He's asking God to remain utterly consistent with his unchanging being and to work change in David instead. Not, you should change and be merciful to me, but be consistent with who you are and change me. Have mercy on me, not because my confession and repentance moves you to be something you're not, but have mercy on me because that is who you eternally are, the God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. Do you hear the good news there? You did not somehow convince God to change and be compassionate, kind, and merciful to him. You did not move him to love you nor bait him into keeping his covenant promises to you. My wife moves me to love her. I see her, I interact with her, and my love for her grows. I move toward her. That's what creatures do. You and I do not move God to love us. He doesn't look down and go, oh, so precious. I just feel love I didn't have before. You complete me. You make me a better God than I once was. That's not what's happening. God is loving. He is love. He doesn't become something he was not. He is good. He is kind. And out of his great love for us, he sent forth his son 
our Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. So the question is, have you trusted Christ and confessed your sins, repenting of your wickedness and looking to the Lord for grace in Christ? Have you done that? Look to him for grace. You might wonder what it looks like to trust Christ and repent of your sins, and it looks like David in Psalm 51. And I'm not going to go in depth into that. I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. Feel free to come speak to me. But let's end with seeing how it looks. And I'm not going to comment here. I'm just going to read verse 3 through 15. And I want you to hear his confessing and repenting and believing and singing and declaring and worshiping. Look at it here, verse 3. For I know, David speaking himself, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would understand as David does, that you are God. You are the one who is. The one who is love, who is holy, who is righteous. You are the God who has shown grace and mercy to wicked, sinful creatures. Creatures whose love and faith waxes and wanes. But you are the God who keeps your promises. You are truth and life and in you alone we have hope may we trust in you may we trust in your son and the great gift of him out of your love for us we give thanks that your love for us does not wax and wane that your righteousness and holiness do not wax and wane that you are god that you do not change. May we submit our minds to believing the mystery you have revealed about yourself and pray, give thanks, sing, and declare the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.